0: How will AI shape society and how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. Advances in digital innovation, including artificial intelligence, are rapidly changing the face of both healthcare research and the delivery of care. In his work as a clinician, professor, and researcher, Dr. Daniel Baumgart is working to advance precision medicine on all of these fronts. Dr. Daniel Baumgart is the director of the Division of Gastroenterology in the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta. Dr. Baumgart holds an MD, PhD, and an MBA, and leads research with the Alberta Precision Health Innovation Research and Technology Ecosystem. His list of accolades, funding, and partnerships are numerous. He has been the principal investigator on over 200 multinational clinical trials. Recent research areas include projects on AI-enabled decision support systems, digital health, and virtual care, and he joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Baumgart, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Katrina. I look forward to our conversation.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. Now, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Signature Research Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of healthcare?
1: The main reason I think there's a role for artificial intelligence in medicine and healthcare is that medical knowledge and data are growing exponentially. And it has simply become impossible for healthcare professionals to acquire and apply all of that knowledge to the individual patient any longer, despite all of that specialization. And technology and new methodology like artificial intelligence can help facilitate that goal.
0: Well, before we jump into uh, talking more about your research and about medicine, um, I'd love to just know a little bit about the MBA. I'm really curious about what prompted you to pursue a business degree on top of all of your medical credentials.
1: So to immediately remove the elephant from the room, I do not believe that medicine is a business like any other. Unfortunately, That is a position that some of our decision-makers in society, especially in politics, occasionally assume. The second prejudice that exists is that physicians, for no apparent reason, are perceived to have no sense of business in a way that they do not consider expenditures and revenues So if you want a catchy answer, I wanted to learn the language of the other side of the dialogue so that we can have educated conversations about the subject, not because I want to change sides or because I want to sell, quote unquote, medicine or healthcare.
0: Well, that's great. I'm sure it's been useful uh, for you in your role as a director, where I imagine that you are managing uh, budgets and thinking about revenue and such things.
1: I do, in fact, have to consider it because a division or a department are, in a way, a small or medium-sized company, and they have to be run cost conscientious. So there is no endless amount of funding available in research, medicine, and healthcare, and that's why knowing these mechanisms better than you would probably learn in medical school, I found, was important.
0: And I also um, have heard that you have an interest in computer technology and programming, in addition to your um, your background in medicine, and that uh, you had maybe some early uh, projects in this area. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your interest in computer programming and technology?
1: All of us are obviously shaped by our parents, the way they uh, raise us, by our upbringing, and, and My particular case, my father was one of the first proud owners of a programmable calculator. Saying that in 2021 sounds a little bit odd because people cannot imagine that there was a time that a programmable calculator was a technical revolution. So the, if I may say that the Hewlett Packard 67 was one of those devices, which actually traveled to the moon. I'm not making this up. So this particular calculator, which by the way, was also built to a totally different standard. So you find gold, literally gold contacts in there. So longevity for this thing is is incredible. So that particular device, I learned how to program. And yes, I had a little bit of an agenda there because you may remember from high school and college that we all had to do these physics and chemistry labs with endless lab series where you had to conduct these experiments and record all the numbers. This was a very tedious task. And I felt if I could simulate these experiments on that programmable calculator so that it produces the figures that I needed for the experiment, I didn't have to do the full experiment. And so I did program it. And yes, it also included actually errors so that the data looked more real. That that was basically the beginning of the journey.
0: What a great story. Well, and a little bit of foreshadowing of of what's to come in your career. Well, let's talk a bit more about precision health. Um, Can you explain what precision health means to you?
1: In my opinion, precision health is enabled through a learning health system in which medicine and multidisciplinary science Economic viability, diverse culture, but also empowered patients' and citizens' preferences are digitally integrated and conceptually aligned for continuous improvement and equity. Best practices, discovery, but also entrepreneurship, that brings us a little bit back to the MBA, are seamlessly embedded in the healthcare delivery process. Knowledge and innovation business opportunity are generated as an integral part of healthcare of the healthcare delivery experience. So unlike now, where we have a clear distinction between research, education, and innovation, in the future, academic knowledge will be harvested in the actual healthcare delivery process. That's the big difference. So no longer just randomized controlled trials, they are able to answer certain questions But a lot of it in the future will be a more integrated process. And by integrated, I'm not just talking about all the medical technology. I want to emphasize that integrating patients and citizens and their concerns and their preferences and ultimately also their data is something that we should aim for. So that unlike in the 1950s, where whatever the doctor said was the law, we want to take a more Comprehensive approach to uh, to delivering good healthcare.
0: So, is that what you mean by a learning uh, health? How did you say it? Learning healthcare culture.
1: A, a learning health system. Now, that might be a little bit of a technical term. So, learning, as you know, has multiple levels, and in some way, artificial intelligence, maybe unsurprisingly, incorporates some of these basic aspects. The knowledge acquisition process that we undergo in kindergarten, high school, college, university is eventually mathematically replicated. And when you think about artificial intelligence applications in medicine, you eventually also need to validate what some kind of predictive algorithm tells you. And that validation comes, for instance, from holding it to the everyday standard and also incorporating the feedback of patients so it's not what some people think that robots will take over and the whole thing becomes dehumanized that's not the case as the term decision support that you mentioned earlier Katrina indicates it's a support and whatever a machine an algorithm a piece of software proposes needs to be validated in practice and over time not only healthcare professionals learn and hone their skill sets but also these algorithms they grow because medical data and that's very different from manufacturing for instance is not static so that's why a health system has to learn over time in this simple concept of training medical professionals but then also all the way up to artificial intelligence where these algorithms adapt to new data and generate new information and provide more refined, if you will, more precise decisions. I'd like
0: support. to explore how this looks in the context of your own research. And I know that you've done some research into Crohn's disease, and I, I understand that that uh, Canada has one of the highest incidences of Crohn's disease in the world. Can you tell us a bit about how Precision Health um, is playing into that research and, and treatment of that condition? What does that look like in the context of your work?
1: Indeed, Katrina, Canada is a northern country, and as you know, some refer to it as the true north. And we know from epidemiology studies that Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis commonly referred to as inflammatory bowel diseases are more prevalent than in most other parts of the world. So there is a huge burden here on society with these diseases. Unfortunately, many Canadians suffer from that. That's one challenge. But the bigger challenge and blessing at the same time is that we have an increasing number of so-called targeted therapies, therapies that have a molecular target in the human body and they try to interfere with the processes that drive inflammation over the past 20 years a variety of new agents has become available and the growth of this field is exponential the challenge now is how do we sequence or initially select and eventually sequence these therapies we have currently little or no way to predict an individual treatment response on the other hand we know if we select the quote-unquote right agent from the beginning the individual patient's outcome is better than if we use that agent second or third line so hopefully with a new approach a more precise approach. We can predict which patient populations respond best to a particular concept. Very
0: interesting. So many questions about that. Um, the first one being just this, this northern connection. Has there been research that um, unpacks that? Like, what? Why is it that there are higher incidences of these diseases in northern climates?
1: The etiology or pathogenesis of these diseases is complex, and Like many diseases, there is a genetic component to it, so people inherit a risk to develop the diseases. But at the same time, there are so-called environmental factors. Environmental factors do not necessarily refer to temperature, humidity, and, and climate, which is certainly also a special factor in Canada. But they also refer to Western lifestyle, to nutrition, and to other things. So these factors eventually shape the composition of the human microbiome, which is a main driver of this. And as we have learned over the past 10 years, many other illnesses, especially chronic illnesses. So there are a variety of theories uh, around it, how the environment can impact. The microbiome, and maybe that eventually explains why there is a greater number of individuals. The second item there, and that relates to the genetic component, as we both know with the exception of our first nations all of us are immigrants we came from another continent or actually several other continents and that also means that we brought certain genetic risks with us and since the patient populations that came to northern america to north america are selected patient populations because certain parts of society on the other continents has come here that probably ultimately resulted in enrichment and then lastly the lifestyle that you see in north america is quite distinct and especially when it comes to nutrition and that has something to do with the industrial revolution so i don't want to deviate too much from the path but there are a variety of factors that potentially explain it there is no single answer to that highly interesting and relevant question that you asked.
0: Yeah. And then I, I I naturally go to thinking about all of those aspects that you've just described as potential sources of data and perhaps um, applying the machine learning and, and AI technologies to analyze that. Is that part of what's, uh, where the pathway is going towards precision health is being able to take in all of the different types of data and provide some sort of analysis that leads to some kind of either prediction or treatment protocol?
1: Right on, Katrina. I think as physicians, but also researchers, we have to acknowledge that we truly need to start thinking outside the box. So far, we have become a little bit obsessed with sequencing the genome, sequencing the microbiome, looking at various classic sources of health or biomedical data. However, what we have less considered is, for instance, people's physical activity, their diet, their lifestyle beyond these two factors. All of these things are left out of the quote-unquote equation. Secondly, healthcare as we have seen it until the pandemic or until Alberta, because both have kind of accelerated digital innovation. Alberta Alberta is a global leader in this area, but think about it this way. So far, healthcare is delivered in three classical settings, which is an outpatient clinic, an emergency room, and the hospital. And if you think about your own life, unfortunately, you have had very few encounters, there are huge gaps then in between those encounters. If you have a chronic illness, like for instance, inflammatory bowel diseases, this is a big problem because a lot of information slash data slash feedback from patients is lost because they only meet us in these classic encounters. And now we see a dramatic change, a transformation of the healthcare system. So the patients are hopefully in the future, no longer just coming to us. We will come to them virtually, for instance, and part of the healthcare experience will be that they participate more in their healthcare also with, for instance, lab-on-chip devices where certain biomarkers can be uh, measured, and that, I think, is one of the drivers also of, of digital health and ultimately produces the amount of data that artificial intelligence needs to shine.
0: Yeah, and I, I think this is a great segue into the next thing I want to talk about, which is about um, COVID, because I, I think health is something that's been on all of our minds uh, these past 18 months, um, and it's it's ever present. Um, And I want to take a look at a project that you've been working on uh, with respect to COVID 19. And full disclosure, I worked for you a little bit um, on this project and we were looking at COVID data in Alberta. But can you tell us a little bit about the project and just explain to our audience what it was all about?
1: The COVID pandemic has changed the world. And although most people will immediately associate this statement with a lot of negative thoughts, understandably, and not denied by me in any way, there's also a silver lining to this. The silver lining is that it is accelerating the way we think about healthcare and maybe also biomedical discovery. If you think about how fast the vaccine um, was developed, and the vaccine, if I may say that, was invented um, in a small spin-off of a university that eventually teamed up uh, with a pharmaceutical giant uh, to, to make this into a reality. But to come back to your specific question about what you and I and the other great team members that we had uh, investigated was unique in a sense that usually COVID is looked at by epidemiologists, virologists, experts for the actual illness and its complications and and, and public health experts. However, our team, through you and the other bright minds, was supplemented and combined. I shouldn't say supplement. I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I I should say we, we had the unique opportunity to work with a team that included social scientists. And I think that adds a very important aspect, which is also part of precision health, that we bring in the societal perspective now. Specifically, what we were trying to do was take a look at the medical data, like the case numbers, the unfortunate deaths, the infected people, the tested people, so key metrics of the pandemic, but then relate this to public health communications. And those communications were analyzed with AI technology that can tease out, for instance, sentiment from a statement that a politician or public health officer gave. And similar data was extracted through um, technology that was basically collecting information from social media on the internet, like Twitter and websites. So, And what we want to study is to understand if there's a correlation between how communications impacted the course of the pandemic. Unfortunately, if you look at wave four in Alberta, I think even without doing a statistical test, it will become very obvious that there is a profound correlation between how Data was interpreted and communicated, and how the course of the pandemic went.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting just to see the impact of communications on public health, and and correspondingly the uh, uh, the pa- the impact of the pandemic itself. I'm I'm really curious about the statement about accelerating. Uh, digital innovation. And I'm interested in knowing, what were you seeing working inside this system? Because you were working uh, as a clinician uh, inside the healthcare system as this was taking place. What was that like for you and what were you seeing?
1: It wasn't as challenging as in other jurisdictions. Why? Alberta had invested into a digital health environment already in the 90s, even before. But I would say since the mid-90s, profound pieces of infrastructure were built. And not only that, they have also provided the legal framework to deliver virtual healthcare, meaning, as we have just said, the patient is not necessarily always coming to a medical facility of sorts, but could stay in the comfort or in the safety of their home, and then communicate either with a nurse, with a physician, with an emergency provider, et cetera, et cetera. So the important thing about Alberta is that the legal framework was in place, the technology was in place, and just, quote unquote, driving up the number of visits that go through that system was not as challenging as in other places where we don't have that. And let me be even more specific. A profound difference here is that every healthcare provider has access to the patient's entire medical record. So there is really no information gap. And that is of course a key requisite to provide healthcare in that say se- in, in, in in that setting. Now, has it been perfect? Absolutely not. Because as you know, Katrina, we have different groups in our society. There is the younger generation that is tech savvy for them. This is just another app on their portable device. But then we also have and it's not only age dependent i want to emphasize that I, I i would say there are other parts of society that are struggling with technology and for them to engage in an appointment with a video uh, communication for instance is quite different now talking about my specialty highlights another aspect there are certain areas of the human body um, that you can easily talk about in a video communication, but if you talk about aspects of your digestive tract, that can be very embarrassing and that's another challenge. So I do not think that virtual care will completely replace um, our interactions with patients, but at the time of crisis, and maybe also for the management of chronic diseases where you do not always have to do a full physical exam, sometimes you need to make adjustments to medications, discuss some test results. I think virtual care can supplement medicine and the pandemic has accelerated it because it created an immediate need to do it. There was not much room for a grassroot type of discussion. We had to move on it, otherwise the system would have collapsed.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how fast uh, we can move when we're, we're forced to, when we're kind of put in a situation where it's necessary. Um, I want to ask you also about um, obtaining the data ne- necessary for for this work. And I know that there were some challenges in obtaining some of the, uh, the medical data that uh, we were looking for in this research. Can you talk a little bit about challenges in getting access to data as a medical researcher?
1: First of all, I would once again emphasize that Alberta has a unique culture around data. It is referred to as open data culture. However, that does not and can never mean that when it comes to personally identifiable information and medical data is such information that we, we can ignore rules and and concerns. So the first thing when you want to do any kind of research projects and this one is no different is that you establish trust, trust with the custodians of the information, trust with people who administer uh, this information. so we went through the whole process of course and uh, and obtained an ethics vote and uh, and obtained consent to work with this data. Why did it take a little bit longer? Because number one, due to the pandemic, almost every part of society that includes ethics committees and academic administrative units, research uh, administration uh, departments, they they were challenged because their personnel wasn't always available. But then certainly it also does take a while to get all these permissions in place in general and then half the personnel who has the direct access to deliver it. So I think along the way, we paved the way for a new way to work with large portions of data. That's another positive outcome maybe of the pandemic in a sense that we built the trust. We explained why this research is different and cannot only ask for certain portions that we really needed to have the whole data set. I see this as a win, although of course, because research is also competitive, it, it would have been nicer had we received access earlier and we could have published certain stories that now other people have done. But I'm still confident that it was worthwhile to go through the process and ultimately have it available for the future.
0: So We're, we're talking about a lot of different components here, um, delivering uh, care in different ways, different types of data, quantitative data, population level data, individual data, genetics. Um, are we ready for this? Um, when I think about processing all of that data and the, not only the, the people, but the resources, everything that needs to come together, what's your take on, on uh, how things are right now? Are we equipped to deal with this new direction in medicine?
1: The readiness has several domains. There is the technology component, and I would say clearly, yes. For this type of computing, you need fast storage. And as you know, maybe from your own laptop computer, there are no more any moving parts except for the fan and a laptop. So the hard drive, which is a critical component to store uh, large amounts of data is gone. And that has been replaced by different types of uh, storage technology. And another very important development of the past, five or ten years is the discovery that if you want to do artificial intelligence applications, that these actually do not run very well in the classic CPU, but they they run on a different part that is currently only used to... Um, support the displays of uh, the computers. This is called GPU, graphical processing unit. So there is one company in the world, I'm not going to name names, that is a leader in this particular area, and they have discovered that their GPU chips are the ones that can do that particular processing best. And if you follow the developments in, in physics and engineering, you will notice that a new type of computing environment is being created. And that is interesting when you compare this a little bit to society. Right now, the bottleneck of computing is the CPU and its self-administration. So at some point, the computer gets so busy administrating itself that it can no longer do the task efficiently and effectively. So there is a new architecture called um, RISC which is a reduced instruction set computing that is coming. And along with that, our new hardware technologies, in a sense, they will have organic-like components. Again, if you look at your cell phone, there is a specific fruit brand from Southern California that uses these displays in your mobile devices. They already contain organic semiconductor technology that will come so, from that on, I think we are ready uh, for new architectures that can handle the amount of information. Now, the second domain is readiness for society. And what we just heard about healthcare is applying across the board. A lot of people these days are interested and willing to share personal information. It starts with athletic parameters that uh, certain watches can capture, but also being generous with sharing aspects of, of their individual lives and their activities and so on. There's already quite a bit out there. And then third, I do think that there's increasing an increased readiness to acknowledge that healthcare can only grow if we incorporate these additional pieces of information. So I do think we are ready, but... I would also say the biggest challenge, and that applies to healthcare and all other sectors where data is handled. We also need to consider cyber security and, and need to ensure that privacy regulations are in place and that we harness especially this particularly sensitive data against wrongful use
0: absolutely as you're describing uh some of that infrastructure i'm thinking we're recording directly to the cloud here so i i can definitely relate to this idea of like how we conceive of storage and and how we think about hardware in new ways Um, and also this idea that um, a lot of this comes down to societal readiness and whether individual people and uh, institutions are actually ready to uh, to embrace this change. And what does that look like? So I wanted to ask you about that from a couple of different perspectives, Um, maybe starting with the doctors or the clinicians uh, perspective. What are what were you seeing unfolding in terms of readiness um, around uh, digital health from the perspective of of individual clinicians? Um, What was that like for you?
1: I would say, Katrina, that I saw what I just tried to describe. We had champions who were ready like minutes after we made the decision to roll with this. Then we had early adopters that after a reasonable amount of time, I would say a couple of weeks were feeling fairly comfortable. And then undeniably, we also did have and continue to have colleagues that are struggling by even just using the electronic health record because computing may not be their quote-unquote thing. And that's, again, something that needs to be considered. We need to educate our next generations early on to integrate these things into their lives. And I think this is the honest assessment, pretending that everybody was on board from day one and there were never any technical challenges or also embarrassed, dissatisfied patients that felt that this is not the way they want to receive care. That would be ignorant. I think we need to acknowledge that this, like any other revolution, some people have co- called it fourth industrial revolution, will will have to be taken on with with individual well-defined steps.
0: Yeah, so if, if I'm understanding correctly, you were seeing this, there was is, there is, um, an adoption curve happening on both sides. So on the clinician side, it was kind of mirroring the patient side in that there were some that were really ready and, and able to, to move uh, rather quickly, and others that perhaps required more support. Does that look just like an educational or training issue, or is there something more there? Is it, is it a massive uh, shift in, in um, expectations, let's say, around what is healthcare, or is it just a training issue?
1: I think there are several challenges. So, in an ideal world, if you look at a large organization, and that includes a healthcare organization, you would never launch a revolutionary technology everywhere at the same time. If you look at manufacturing and electric cars, the way they take this on is they build a prototype. So in a hospital that could be a model department where you would say, well, this is how digital healthcare delivery should or could look like in the future. This is where you would experiment, quote unquote, with new workflows. With new ways to communicate with your teams, with new ways to distribute patients, with new ways to train your personnel. And then slowly you would roll this out. You would never threaten the integrity and the operation of a large organization by saying, as of tomorrow, we make electric cars. Every single model, you know, that doesn't happen. And ideally in healthcare, a similar approach could have been or should have been taken. We didn't have that opportunity at the time when this hit. I still think there would be value to something like this, even today, because there is a lot more that we need to do. Now, coming back to your specific question, is it just the training and education but, or is it also a mindset, a societal discussion? I absolutely agree with you. That there will always be opponents there, and they have also some valid arguments. And one of their concerns is, of course, again, that some kind of algorithm decides on their health, on their treatment, and what about failure? You've seen negative examples in the financial industry. You have heard about cyber terrorism, where they try to paralyze entire cities by hacking into their utilities and so on and so forth. So I do think we need a dialogue and I think we need to develop strategies that digital inclusion can be accomplished. Also, we need to consider there are individuals that may not have some kind of political difference. There are people that are They have challenges. They cannot use certain things. How do we integrate them into the process? It cannot be that we say, well, you know, too bad. You have some congenital defect that you were born with and you cannot operate some terminal. And and I think there are a lot of things that need to be considered. And ideally, you have a prototype that you can train on, that you can develop this with, where you can do PDSA cycles and then move it from there and slowly expand it. And I I still think overall, that's what we should do. Although we were kind of forced into this with the pandemic, it doesn't mean that what we're currently doing is the best way. In fact, I should think we should take a very close look what has happened over the past 18 months and which of these elements can and should go forward and what else, you know, how do we really develop this in a more comprehensive, inclusive way?
0: Yeah, those are all fantastic points. And I'm curious to know your perspective on how do we move forward from from this moment? So there were obviously uh, we didn't roll this out under ideal conditions, but we are where we are. We need to move forward. How do we have an inclusive conversation uh, that brings the right people or the right stakeholders to the table? Um, Are are there discussions underway in the healthcare system about that? What does that look like?
1: Right now, right this moment, Katrina, there's only one priority, which is to overcome the immediate threat that Wave 4 has um, thrown at us. I do think there is a dialogue in the healthcare system, but also in the university. I would emphasize that I say university and not just faculty of medicine. I strongly believe that digitalization, including but not limited to applications of certain AI technologies, is something that requires expertise beyond just that application. Because healthcare is not, and I may quote the WHO, is not just health, is not just the absence of disease. There are social components to this and other components. So I think the best way to take this on, and we have tried to replicate this in our team, and I have replicated this philosophy in an uh, application to a tri-agency funding body to NSERC in an application where we build a comprehensive program for a diverse group of trainees from law, from humanities, from engineering, from education, from health sciences. And I think this is how we should look at this, bring in the competence, the expertise, the angle and develop that strategy together. Instead of saying, oh, you know, this needs to be done uh, by healthcare professionals and some tech people and they will figure it out. I think if we do this way, then society, some parts of society will feel left out and certain very important concerns are not addressed. So I strongly believe in a multidisciplinary approach and I strongly believe in the model approach that you develop a model structure where you have kind of your sandbox environment um, and then see how things go and incorporate all these other stakeholders. That is ultimately a more successful strategy than assuming that digitalization or implementation of AI is just delivering a piece of software to a large organization. It is not. It is also not just transcribing something Uh, into a computer system, an old paper process. It's really rethinking healthcare. And if I may step back one more time, healthcare currently means the citizens come to the healthcare system. They come by car, by helicopter, by ambulance, family members. There's always some kind of physical interaction that they enter the premises of some kind of healthcare facility. But I do believe in the future, The healthcare system will come to them in various different ways with virtual visits with some lab devices that they have at home with phone calls with certain services that come to their house even to some extent maybe including robotics and robotics again it's not that thing that is walking around in the house but it might be a device for rehabilitation that's also a robot something that can train your muscles after a car accident and if you think about this in this broader sense Um, That's, I think, where we're going, that maybe some of the rehabilitation can happen with those devices in your home and they can help you exercise and we're not wasting taxpayer money in a large um, brick and mortar facility when this can be comfortably done uh, somewhere else. Yeah, you
0: paint a a very compelling uh, picture of the future. And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but if you had to make some predictions about this, is, is this something that we're going to see in the next decade or two, or, or or is some of this already in play? Where, where are we at in this whole process?
1: I would say, and I'm a proud Albertan, as you know, a proud new Albertan, that in this province, you can see already parts of the future. And I alluded to it, we have a digital health infrastructure that is unique in Canada and beyond. We have what you initially called population-level data. So, What do I mean by that? If you go to a prestigious US American institution like Harvard Medical School, they have a couple of teaching hospitals. And yes, they're a large organization, but they are not representative of the population of Massachusetts, absolutely not. In fact, they're massively biased because they're a quaternary care center and they see a certain patient population that is not representative. What are the consequences in the the context of digital health? Well, here you go. If you build an algorithm based on Harvard hospital data, it is not representative, meaning if you take that algorithm to California or to Iowa, it will produce wrongful results. Am I just dreaming this up? No, there's actually research out there, people who have studied this, that a lot of the innovation that has been created on the East Coast, for instance, in those Ivy League institutions is not applicable. Now, fortunately, Canada takes a different approach to healthcare and Alberta is is a bright example. Here we can build algorithms that are representative of our population in all of its diversity, the different ethnic groups, the different age groups, the different socioeconomic groups. So this is exactly why I think we need to look at certain things. Do they have bright minds in Boston? Absolutely. But we have kind of the solid foundation to combine the bright minds at our academic institutions with the unique resources in the province and that's why i think um, we will be leaders in this field now specifically your timeline question i think number one certain things are already there and we are definitely ahead of the curve here Others, I would say you will see within the next five years, especially in the sector of wearables and measuring certain uh, biomarkers at home and collecting data that is management that is relevant for the management of chronic diseases. And some of the more futuristic things With robotics at home, what I mentioned there as an example, that may take longer.
0: Very interesting to think about our our advantages of having a public healthcare system uh, that had a digital infrastructure in place, but also uh, this idea of representation that you're talking about and having the diversity in the data because of, of who we're serving. Uh, in the system. It's really interesting to think about uh, that kind of an Alberta advantage. And we've covered a lot of ground here today. Uh, Just before we wrap up, I'd love to know what's next for you? What new projects uh, do you have on the horizon?
1: So for this group of diseases that we talked about a little bit, the inflammatory bowel diseases, I'm hoping that we can develop a and convolutional neural network model that can help to objectively detect this disease. In other words, distinguish it from similar illnesses in the digestive tract, objectively assess disease activity, and also complications. Why is this important? Only 1.6% of specialists practice in in rural Canada, well, that's easy, right? Because Canada is the second largest country in in the world. That's why that percentage is so impressive. But it means that a lot of people do not have access to, for instance, a highly specialized radiologist that could, quote unquote, manually read these images. So if we can bring technology to those locations and an algorithm can do kind of a pre-reading of an imaging study, that would be very helpful even without the geographic challenge if one of the key applications of of AI is image interpretation. This is where it's most advanced. Think about your car and all the navigation features. This is all AI just in a different context. So I strongly believe that we can improve uh, diagnosis and also objective assessment of disease activity and response to a so-called targeted therapy to a more precise uh, molecularly targeted therapy. Secondly, I want to answer some questions that we touched upon briefly initially that relate to selecting the best possible agent for a patient. So, we want to build some predictive models regarding targeted therapies, how to initiate them and how to sequence them, and maybe also predict disease risks that we can adapt our surveillance procedures. So... Imaging models and some predictive models on disease course and and, and therapy response that's next on my list and I already mentioned we have submitted a large grant application to NSERC that is an international approach with institutions here in Canada, in uh, the European Union and Japan, and we also have 17 industrial partners, some of the biggest players in the tech world, and I hope with that brain power and the enthusiasm that I see here in Canada around digital health, we can open the new chapter.
0: Well, it sounds like there's no shortage of projects for you. Uh, Dr. Baumgart, I just want to say thank you so much for making time to be on the podcast today and sharing a little bit about your story and your research. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Katrina. It was very enjoyable to talk to you as always.
0: AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforSociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIForSociety.ca.